Okay, well, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23. Well, I've titled this message, The Call to Continue. The Call to Continue. There's a danger. There's a danger in drifting away from the things that we have heard and believed and received. And the struggle is real, is it not? And we'll talk more about that, but I just wanted to, to first tell you that and then I wanted to read our text together in its entirety, which is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. So if you're with me, please follow along. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, God, that right here and now, Lord, you're speaking to us by your word. As I read the word of God and I teach it. Father, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things from your law. I pray, God, that you would be worshipped, that you would be praised. And I pray, God, that you would please move in a very special way. We need you, Lord. We need to hear from you. So I pray, God, that you would speak loud and clear through your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you recall last week, the, the verses that we looked at, Paul gave us a very robust theological understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. He's the agent of creation. Through him, all things are created. He's the purpose of creation. They are all for him, and in him, all things hold together. And so we talked about that in great detail. And now, in these next few verses, Paul is going to go on to drive home the implications of that. That should uh, affect the way that we live our lives, and it certainly does. We have been reconciled by the one, the only one truly qualified to do so, the God-man. We talked about that last week. And so now, moving on, you could outline these three verses, each verse as such, the Verse 21, Paul reminds us of our condition outside of Christ, who we were. Verse 22, Paul describes who we now are in Christ as those who have been reconciled, our new identity in him. And then finally, verse 23, how we must continue on in him, how we must not drift. And there is this ever-present danger to drift. And so if you are uh, outlining, it's, it's pretty much that simple, each verse. Who we were, who we are, and how we must continue on in Jesus. And that is the central theme of these verses, verse 23, where he says, If indeed you continue on in the faith and hope of the gospel. If indeed we continue on. This is a call to continue in what they had believed. We must stay the course, folks. We must stay the course. We must not turn to the left 
or to the right. That's, that's something that I love to tell people. Don't turn to the left or the right, and certainly don't go backwards. It's been a very powerful thing that the Lord has worked out in me over the years. It was something that was so very necessary in my life. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But this is a, a very central theme throughout the whole of the Scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, now the whole first generation of the Israelites that had been delivered out of Egypt died off in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. When it was about time to go into the promised land, they didn't believe or trust God would give them the, the victory, and so they didn't go. So when that generation died off, the next generation was about to go in, and Moses recaps for them the law. And so that's what Deuteronomy is. It's essentially a recapitula uh, recapitulation of the law, just a, a total recap. They're getting ready to go into the land, and this is what Moses says to them. In chapter 5, verse 32, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. So when Moses dies and Joshua becomes the, the commander, if you will, of the army and the nation, he's getting ready to take the people into the promised land to take it for their own personal possession. This is what Joshua says in chapter 1, verse 6. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. And this, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. So this theme is repeated. Don't turn to the right or the left. You've received God's law. You've received God's instruction. Don't turn. And then in the end of Joshua, after they had taken the land, and Joshua is an old man at this point, you know in chapter 22 it talks about, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's, it's in that context. In chapter 23, verse 6, Mo, uh, Joshua says, Therefore be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. And I could trace this phrase well throughout the rest of the Bible. And I think the, the point is clear. Don't turn. Do not deviate from what God has called us to. What we have heard, what we have believed, what we have bowed the knee to, we're to continue on in it. And this is the battle that ever faces the Christian. That's why that, that old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I mean, can you relate with that? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. This is one of the first real exhortations that I ever remember receiving from a pastor as a, as a very new believer, you know. He said, Rob, do me a favor, just stop wavering. Stop wavering, you know, roller coaster Rob. To the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, up and down. You know, I had a brother tell me a few years later, another pastor at another church, I, uh, I, had, I came... Uh, we became close. He kind of took me under his wing, and all of a sudden I disappeared, as was so, so typical of me. And he called me one morning at work early and said, what, you know, what's going on? Where you been? And I started hemming and hawing a little bit, you know. And then he quoted this verse to me. He said, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 
He's like, Rob, you got to be faithful, man. You got to stay the course. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter how this day is going or next week or whatever. You got to stay consistent. You got to stay the course. Well, I didn't, you know. And years later, another pastor at another church, picking up the theme here, he said, you know, one thing about Rob is he's consistently inconsistent. You know, if there was one thing that was consistent about me, it was my inconsistency. And so that is why this message is so important to me, because I know what a struggle it was for me for the first several, several years of my walk and how I suffered uh, in, in my growth as a result, you know. And so I've been there, done that, and I see this struggle frequently in others. Backsliddenness, lukewarmness excited at first, and then the excitement fades, and then all of a sudden they kind of disappear, nowhere to be found, and then they're back, and then they're not, and on and on. There's so many different variations of that cycle. And so this is, uh, this is very important for all of us. We need to hear this. We need to be reminded. We need to be encouraged. We need to be challenged in this area. And the necessity to continue on in the face of the danger of drifting, Right? So what am I talking about here exactly? Are we talking about losing one's salvation? What do we mean when we talk about continuing on the faith or the, the hope of the gospel? Well, I think the context is, is clear. If you'll recall, Paul's been talking about them, to them about the sufficiency of Christ. He's more than enough. And there were all of these other false doctrines that were creeping into the church, and people were tempted to turn away from the, the truth of the gospel and to embrace these other perversions. And so Paul's saying, look, don't get caught up in that stuff. Don't be wooed by it. Don't be distracted or swayed from the pure gospel in these things. And that's really the context of what is happening here. He's telling them not to turn away or to defect from that which they had heard and received in him because it's the only way. There is no other way. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That was the temptation in the book of Hebrews. They had turned from the law to grace, and they were suffering because of it, the Jews, and they were tempted to go back to the law, to go back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. There's nothing left for you there. There's nothing to go back to. And I just think that's solid counsel, that's solid wisdom. There's nothing to go back to. You know, this is, this is where it is, guys. Eyes ahead, hands to the plow, keep digging. Keep moving forward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Don't go back. You know, as far as turning away, losing one's salvation, you know, that could be a very real part of this whole discussion, this verse that we're looking at, these verses. And I don't really want to get too deep into that today. I don't think that that's really necessary, but I think it's important to maybe touch on it for a second. I thought about maybe doing a standalone message on the issue of of uh, once saved, always saved, whatever you want to call it, eternal security, and I'm, I may still do that. But uh, I think the, the application here is, is pretty broad. It's an encouragement to stay committed. But I think that you could also, some people do take this verse to mean that if you turn away, you can turn away, and if you do turn away, that's it. You know, you're, you're out. You've lost your salvation. And I can understand why people might interpret this verse that way. It does sound very conditional, does it not? You were enemies, you've been reconciled, if indeed you continue on in the faith. At, at first glance, it's easy to see 
how people would take that stance. There are a number of te uh, texts in the New Testament, warning passages, they're called, that kind of have that same flavor, if you will. And, you know, early on in my walk, the first several years, I think my understanding of all of this was simply this. Look, nothing can snatch us from the hands of God, right? We're safe in the Father's arms. And we're not going to lose our salvation because we slip up and say a cuss word or we sin or even fall into some grievous sin. But I think that, uh, you know, my, my understanding of it was that maybe the Bible leaves room for a person to walk away from the faith, to forfeit their faith altogether, to turn away from God. And I think a lot of people hold that, that view. Um, people can and do make strong arguments for that. But, you know, the, the more that I've grown in the Word of God and my understanding of God and His faithfulness and His sovereignty, I think that the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures is that we won't walk away. We won't forfeit our faith. And we'll talk about that as we get into our text. And quite candidly, if I might say, you know, if I could lose my salvation, I think I probably would. You know, because there's, no, there's nothing good in me. I don't have that kind of confidence in myself. I am saved by grace, and I am kept by grace, and I praise God's holy name for that. Don't you? Amen. And so that's the anchor of my soul is, is God's keeping power. And this is uh, the doctrine of perseverance is what it's called, and it's defined as such. All true believers in Christ will persevere in the faith to the end of their lives because they are preserved by the sustaining grace of God. Preserved by the sustaining grace of God preserved by Christ and His keeping power for us. And I, I lean into that. I rest on that. And, you know, on the flip side, though, we see people that we know and love and respect at times turn away from the faith. And that's a challenging thing to deal with. I won't deny that that is something that happens. And so you have to wonder what's up with that. There was a guy, maybe it was just this last year in 2020, Joshua Harris. That name may ring a bell. He wrote the book, uh, Why I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and uh, that was a huge seller 10, 15 years ago, maybe, and a uh, pastor of a megachurch, really solid brother, really sound in doctrine, and he just divorced his wife and walked away from it all and recanted everything that he wrote in that book and everything that he's believed or preached, and you wonder, Lord, how in the world can that happen, you know, and so it can be challenging. I'll be the first to admit it. And so in humility, I have to say, I don't have it all figured out, and I'm not going to say I've got this thing nailed down or pegged. But all I can do is present to you, to the best of my ability, what I believe the Scriptures overwhelmingly teach and confess. Amen? And so that's, that's kind of where I stand on this. These warning passages, forgive me, you know, frankly, I think they exist to give us a kick in the pants, you know, to get us moving, to keep us in the game and committed because here's the deal. God is not going to live our Christian life for us. You know this, right? God is not going to live our Christian lives for us. We must walk with God. We must walk it out. And even in Joshua's day, Joshua said, look, I'm going to give you the victory. The land is yours. But you know what? He still had to go in and take it. Joshua and the army of Israel still had to go in and do the work and take it by faith. And so that's kind of the way it is in the Christian life. The victory is there, folks. 
God, God in his eyes, we're already glorified. It's already a done deal, but we still got to walk this thing out. We still have to walk through this life, walk the Christian life, growing in our knowledge of God and in our love for him and in our obedience to him. And it is not easy. We must faithfully struggle forward and continue on in the things that we have believed. I love that phrase, to faithfully struggle forward. I mean, that's what it really amounts to, faithfully struggling forward. And Paul gives us three good reasons as to why we should do that. You with me? The struggle is real. There has been a call issued to us that we must continue in the face of the danger of drifting. That was like three sermon titles right there. I just kind of tacked together. Pick any one you like. Any one will do. Three good reasons why we must continue on. And the first one is remembering from where Christ has rescued us. When we remember from where Christ has rescued us, it causes us to persevere. I don't want to go back. I don't know about you. I remember from where I have come, and there's nothing about that that is appealing to me. So with that, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That describes who we were and how we were outside of Christ before we knew him. And I appreciate the fact that the Bible describes these things for us because honestly, I don't know that we even fully understand just how bad it really was. I think for some of us, we have a better understanding by virtue of how our lives were and the destruction and damage that we often brought in on, upon ourselves and those around us. But make no mistake, anybody outside of Christ is described as an enemy of God, dead in their trespass and sin, alienated, separated. The language of Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 describe this quite well. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear you. So we were separated from God. His face was hidden from us. He could not, he would not hear us. Ephesians chapter 2, very similar. Verse 12, it says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us. No hope without any hope in the world. God's face hidden from us. His ears stopped up, if you will, not willing to, to hear us. That was our condition. Paul goes on here in this verse, verse 21, to elaborate upon this. He says that we were alienated alienated. That means estranged, separated, shut out from one's fellowship and intimacy. So we were shut out from intimacy with God. We were separated from him, estranged from him. I remember that place. Do you? It's a terrible place to be. He also says that we were enemies, that we were enemies of God. This is a strong word. It's someone openly hostile, animated by deep-seated hatred. Animated by deep-seated hatred. It implies irreconcilable hostility, proceeding out of a personal hatred bent on inflicting harm. And that's heavy, you know. And we may not, many of us may not have thought that of ourselves, you know. Maybe we never even really thought like that. But that, 
that just goes to show you God's perception of us and our blindness to it. Because we were rebels. We weren't interested in God or God's law. We were, as I said, enemies of God, rebels against His holy law. And so this was how God saw us. This was our relationship with Him. And uh, this alienated and enemies in our minds, it says there in, still in verse 21. This is a really fascinating word. It's dianoia, in your minds. That's where the enmity took place. That's where the, the alienation existed. And the word literally means from side to side. In your mind, it literally means from side to side. And the idea is to consider an issue thoroughly, every aspect and angle, and to have a fully informed conclusion. Mind made up and bent on enmity. That's the idea. And this speaks to the extreme with which we were opposed to God in our minds. Our minds were made up. You understand? Minds bent on enmity. And another thing I think is worth mentioning that the Bible uses the word mind and heart so often interchangeably. There's really not a separation. So in our hearts and minds, as we understand it, we were enemies against God. And that is why we're supposed to repent. We're called to repent. And you know what the word repent is? Metanoia. Very similar. So dianoia and our enmity, minds made up, fully orbed reasoning, dead set on it. We are to metanoia, to change our minds, to turn from the darkness to light, to turn from our sin to God, and to have a totally changed mind so that then we will love God with all of our hearts. And what? Mind. Same word. Same word. Dianoia. And so instead of having a mind fully set and bent on hatred and enmity towards God, we are to repent, metanoia, and have our hearts and minds set in love towards God. You tracking with me? We have to have a changed heart, folks, a changed mind. Not only were we aliens and enemies in our minds, but also by wicked works, he goes on to say. By wicked works. You know, a wicked heart that hates the light loves sin, and produces wicked works. They go hand in hand. What's in the heart comes out. John chapter 3, verse 19 describes this well. It says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. When we're in that condition, we hate the light because we love our sin and we don't want to come to the light that our sins would be exposed. So we live in the darkness and we continue on in wicked works. That was us. That is a description of us outside of Christ from where we have been delivered. You know, the Bible speaks about works of the flesh, wicked works in a number of places, but just one is Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. It says this, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. 
of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Frankly, we were all inside that list. I think we might be tempted to look at some of these things and say, well, that's not me. But if you look a little closer, none of us escapes this list in our life outside of Christ and perhaps even sometimes the kinds of things that we fall into or dabble in even as a Christian. And so we have to recognize that this was us through and through because we have a tendency of think, well, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't like that person. Or even maybe now you're sitting here thinking, I'm not that bad. That list may describe those people, but I'm a good person. You know, I go to work, I pay my bills, I give, I, I do good things. I'm not, you know, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. It just doesn't work. God's standard is so insanely high that nobody can measure up to it. And this list describes all of us outside of Christ. But praise God, because in that same verse, 21 there in Colossians, it says, and you who once were. Amen? You who once were. I praise God for that. 1 Corinthians 9.11 says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We have been rescued, folks. Amen? We were stuck in that place, hopelessly and helplessly lost, but our good and gracious, loving Heavenly Father set us free. He reached down and pulled us out, and we have been sanctified, cleansed, justified by the Spirit of God. We've been rescued, we've been washed. We had to be, because we could not do it on our own. We would not do it on our own, the Bible says. It takes a radical act of God and salvation to deliver us from that state that we were so helplessly bound up in. And that's exactly what we have received from God. I feel like Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 encapsulates this whole thing so beautifully. It says this in chapter 3, verse 3 of Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared toward man, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God did that. When we were in that place, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, God reached down and lifted us up. God regenerated us. God transformed us. God washed us and renewed us by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. And we've been justified, amen? And now we're heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen, hallelujah to God. He is so good. He has been so good to us, has He not? He continues to be so very kind, does He not? He's worthy. And I don't want to go back there, folks. I don't want to go back from where God has rescued me. The Bible describes the person that goes back as one who returns to their own vomit like a dog. That's graphic and that's gross, but frankly, folks, that's what it is. That's what it would be for me 
to go back. Can't do it. Ain't going to do it. Amen? By the grace of God. By the grace of God. I want to keep moving forward. I want more of what God has for me. Don't you? What he has for you, you got to get your own. You ain't getting none of mine, all right? (laughs) But he has an abundance of grace and mercy and blessing for you in Christ. And there's no need to go back. This brings us to our second point. Realizing our new identity in Christ causes us to persevere. You guys getting hot out there? You all right? You feeling okay? Good. Realizing our new identity in Christ causes us to persevere. We need to know who we are. We need to know who God has made us to be in Christ. The last part of uh, verse 21 and moving into verse 22, it says, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's who we are. That's who God has made us to be. Notice this, yet now he has reconciled you. We've been reconciled. We were enemies. We were separated from God, alienated, but now we've been reconciled. And that is a bringing together of offended parties, the offensive and the offended. You know, we were the offenders, and God was greatly offended because God hates wickedness. And I don't want to sugarcoat that. The Bible makes that clear. God hates the wicked. God is a loving God, and His love is so much greater than anything that we can ever fathom. But He is also holy, and He hates every wicked deed. He hates wicked people. And such is the grace of God that He would reach down in the face of that hatred, and He would pull us up, and He would save us and cleanse us. God has restored us to a right relationship with Himself. And that's the the essence of Christianity, right relationship with God in Christ. That's what God has done. He's reconciled us to himself through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 21. This is such a classic text here on reconciliation. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Our God is a reconciling God. And there's a few things about this reconciliation that we see in this text. First off, the obvious one, it comes from Christ. Our reconciliation is in him. It is through Jesus Christ that we have been made right before God. It is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Christ became sin, that sin would not be counted against us, so that we would be reconciled to the Father. Christ took our sin on himself, so that the judgment that we deserve would fall on his Son, and that sin would be washed away, and then we would be welcomed into the family of God as beloved sons and daughters through the reconciliation wrought for us by Christ. 
We're transformed through this reconciliation, it says. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is what? A new creation. Hallelujah. A new creation. God does a brand new thing. He doesn't just pick up the pieces. He doesn't just take your old life and try to make it a little better. He does a radically new work. Brand new, transformed creation. Amen? And that's what God has done for us through reconciliation in Christ. That's why we're not enemies. We're not separated. We are brand new in Jesus. That's our identity. A lot of us got to learn to start living in the light of that. Some of us, that is our identity, but we're just not convinced of it. We're living as though we're still separated from God and outside of his love and blessing. No, no. We've been reconciled through Christ and we are new in him. This reconciliation is available to any who believe. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is an open invitation to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved and to be reconciled to God. That's the very thing that Paul was pleading, that they would be reconciled to God. And then lastly, we have a ministry of reconciliation, folks. It doesn't stop with us. God didn't reconcile us so that we could just kick back and do nothing. We are ministers of reconciliation. Amen? We have a ministry of it. Crying out, be reconciled to God. I love seeing that. When you see people come to Christ and they're so excited, they're fired up, and they want to tell everybody about this. They know from where they have been rescued. It's very fresh. And they still, they've, they uh, still have a lot of friends and people that they knew from that previous life. I feel like the longer you walk with Jesus, the the, the more insulated you become in the Jesus bubble, they sometimes call it. And, you know, it's such a neat thing to see people that have been snatched from the flames of hell and all they want to do is share with everybody else that they too can be reconciled. And that is a ministry that we all have in Christ. So that's who we are. That's what God has given us. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. We were enemies separated from God. Now we've been reconciled and we're brand new creations in him. And this all happened in the body of his flesh through death, it tells us there in verse 22 of Colossians. This all happened through the, uh, excuse me, the body of his flesh through death. So reconciliation was accomplished through the death of Jesus. It's just that simple. The active and passive obedience of Christ, that's sometimes called. That is that Christ lived a perfect life, perfect obedience in every single way, in every single way. And then he took the penalty for the broken law upon himself that he didn't deserve. And so he did that in the body of his flesh there on the cross. God's chastisement against sin was on his son there at the cross. So we had offended a holy God, and the judgment for our offense was poured out on His Son Jesus at the cross, releasing our debt and setting us free. That's good news, isn't it? That debt has been paid. That debt has been paid. It is gone. We are new in Christ, reconciled to the Father, and it says that He may present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. I love this word present because it literally means to stand close beside so the idea is, is that Jesus stands right beside you and essentially goes to the Father. Look, look at what I've done. 
Look at the transformation that has occurred here. Look at how I took this person who was an enemy and made them a beloved child and how they are pure and holy and blameless in your sight. Jesus can boldly, boldly present us to the Father. Not ashamed, not ashamed of his bride. He's going to present his bride as spotless, as pure, as faultless before God. Amen? Holy, that is separated from sin and set apart to God. Maybe if we think about it in the reverse, that will help us better understand it. We used to be set apart to sin and separated from God, but that has been reversed. Now we belong to God. We are his. We've been called out of the world into the church, and we are separated from sin, separated to God. We'll be presented blameless, that is, without blemish. It's the same word used for a spotless lamb. Jesus is the spotless lamb. Same word. That's how we will be presented. And might I suggest that's how God sees us right now. That's how God sees us right now. And above reproach. That word above reproach, it means no charge or guilt can be brought. Literally, it means nothing can stick. And so the idea there is like if someone were to be accused of something and you were to say, no way. Your first inclination would be to say, I know that person too well, and that could never be the case. That's the idea of above reproach. All of this in the sight of God, it says there in the text. That's how God sees us, folks. That's how God sees us. MacArthur says this, God sees us now as we will be in heaven when we are glorified. He views us clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the process of spiritual growth involves becoming in practice what we are in reality before God. God already sees us as we are. We're glorified in His sight because of what Christ has already done for us. That does not change. And in this life, what we're essentially doing is growing into our identity. We are looking more and more on the outside like who we actually are on the inside in Christ and who God has said that we are in Him. Amen? So that's who we are now. That's our identity in Christ. That is what has been accomplished and secured for us. And when you know that, when you walk in that, that will encourage you to stay the course. And that, I just can say, from my own personal experience, has been the case at times. You know, there have been times where there was temptation to behave a certain way or to get involved in something. Or maybe I even did fall into some some scenario or jump right in however you want to describe it but then it would really hit me this is not who i am this is not who god has made me to be i can't live like this anymore it feels terrible i hate it you know i want to be close to the lord that's who god has made me to be and you just can't stay in that place very long when you have been regenerated by the holy spirit of god when you have been made alive in christ when you have been born again born from above, and you are a brand new creation in Him, you don't want to go back. You can't go back. It's a horrific feeling when you try to go back. And I know some of us have experienced that. But that motivates us to keep moving forward because we know who we are and we know whose we are. Amen? Amen. And with that, this brings us to our, our last and final point. Recognizing where our hope lies causes us to persevere. Our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in Him. There's no hope anywhere else. Knowing that, 
where else are we going to go? To whom else would we go? That causes us to persevere. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, in the faith. So what is this, the faith? Well, it's the complete body of truth taught in the scripture. Christ, salvation, the church, sanctification, all of that, that is the faith. And that is what we collectively are a part of. We are a part of the faith. We belong to the faith. Jude 1.3 sheds a little light on this. It says this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which once was once and for all delivered to the saints. The faith, that's something that we're to contend for, to fight for the purity of it. Because Jude was concerned that people were going to come in with false teachings and false doctrines and pervert the truth of the gospel, the faith that those people belong to. And he said, don't let that happen. Protect it. Preserve it. Fight for it. Contend for it. The faith. So we're to continue on in the faith, folks. And we will continue. I have that confidence because the person who is truly regenerated will continue on. 1 John 2.19, I think, sheds a little light on this. It says, They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So John is talking about these people who were in the church, but they weren't really the church. And it was only a matter of time before they went out and they turned aside. And John said, that's just the manifestation of the fact that they weren't really in. They were in our midst. You know, the Bible says that there's going to be wheat and tares. Wheat and tares. There's going to always be that. There are going to be those who have truly believed on Christ for salvation and those who haven't, and they're both going to look the same oftentimes. Let that be a warning to all of us. That's why Paul says that we must examine ourselves to see whether we really be in the faith. Because looks can be deceiving. And we might even deceive ourselves. Which is why Jesus issued that warning where he says, On that day you're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And what is he going to say? I never knew you. I never knew who you were. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And so we got to make sure that we're really in. That we're all the way in, right? In the book of 1 John, it actually states... One of the reasons, among a few, that he states why he wrote the book was so that you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that, folks. We can know that. We can have that assurance, and that is by believing on Jesus Christ, believing the truth of the gospel, believing that we, we were who he said we were, enemies, sinners, separated, that he is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God who came to live and die for us to rise again from the dead, that if we believed in him, trusted in him, that we could be made alive in Christ. Believing that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did and that he will do what he said he will do and surrendering our lives to him, bowing the knee to him. We can have that assurance. And Jude 1.1 says, 
Judah, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. That's it, folks. We've been called. We've been called into the light. We're sanctified. We are holy in Christ, and we are preserved in Him. Amen? He's going to see us to the end. He who began a good work in us is faithful to what? Complete it. Finish it. To the day of Jesus Christ. We have that hope. We have that confidence. But you know, we also have a responsibility. We have a part to play in this. And that is the balance. We are called to continue. Jude 1.21 says, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. we got to keep ourselves in the love of God. So wait a second, what is this? Are you saying that I have to keep myself now because you just said God was going to keep me? Well, let me, let me paraphrase it. We got we to gotta stay underneath the spout where the blessings pour out. You know, I mean, we got to stay close to God. God's blessing is not going to be on us if we, if we drift away. If we start flirting with some other kind of gospel, if we, if we start giving ourselves continually to sin, if we get away from fellowship with the Lord, get away from reading the word, get away from praying, fellowshipping, and, and toying with, playing with, flirting with darkness, there's no blessing in that. And so we're called to keep ourselves close to the Lord, stay right there, stay at his feet, just as Mary did there with Jesus. Remember, Martha was upset because Mary wouldn't come help her, serve. And Jesus said to her, look, you're busying yourself with many things, but Mary has chosen the good thing, and that's not going to be taken away from her. She was sitting right there where Jesus was, hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. Folks, that's where the blessing is. We got to keep ourselves in that place. We have to persevere. We have to abide in Christ. That's what that word abide actually means. It means continue. Did you know that? And so he says, he who abides in me will bear much fruit. We have to continue on with Christ. We have to stay connected to the, to the power source, the source of life and blessing. It's in Jesus, and we have to stay close to him. It's a mystery, but both of these things are true at the same time. God is keeping us. God is working, but we have a responsibility. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we're to work out our salvation. We're to, we're, we're to exercise our faith, if you will. We're to put in work. It's rigorous. It's hard. There's toil. But we got to work at it. But guess what? It's God who's actually working in us to both desire to do his will and to actually do it. It's a glorious, glorious way that, that God works those together. Well, Paul goes on to say that we must continue in the faith by being grounded and steadfast. The word grounded here, it means established. It's a solid foundation as on a rock, a house that is built on the rock steadfast. It's a steady and firm resolve, solidly based, well-seated, morally fixed, firm in purpose and mind, well-stationed. 
You understand? You, you, got, you, you catch what, I, what I'm saying here? That's where we have to be, folks. We have to be rooted, grounded. We have to be steadfast. And Jesus describes this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the what? On the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. You want to be steadfast? You want to be grounded? Listen and do what Jesus said to do. You know, you need to remember from where you came. You need to realize who you are in Christ, who God has made you to be. You need to know the words of Christ and do the words of Christ. And Jesus says, that person I will liken to a person who has built their house on a rock. They are on a firm foundation. And when the winds come, when the storm comes, the house is going to stand. And that is us. That is who we are to be. We are to be steadfast and grounded like that. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This is the very thing that we're to continue on in, folks. The hope of the gospel. We're not to drift away and we're not to place our hope in any other thing. There is no hope outside of the gospel. This is God's plan. And this was not a backup plan. This has been God's plan from all of eternity past. This is what God is doing in the world. It's what God is doing through His Son. And so we must not drift away from what we've received as a as tempted as we may be at times to, to drift away, to just give up, to just let go. We cannot do that. Not just any old gospel. It's a very particular gospel. It's the gospel which you heard and was preached and which Paul became a minister of, that gospel. It has to be the right gospel. You understand that, right? Not just any gospel, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul had delivered to the people. You know, this was something that seemed to happen quite often that Paul had to address. In Galatians chapter 1, he addresses this. The people were tempted to drift away from the pure gospel back to, back to religious works, legalism. And he says this, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. That means twist, to distort. People had crept into the church and they were leading people out with a false gospel, a twisted, distorted gospel. And Paul said, I marvel that you are so soon turning away from the true gospel. He goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before and now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's strong language, folks. It literally means damned. If anyone comes and preaches a different gospel, a twisted, distorted gospel, any other gospel than the gospel of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and salvation in Him, let that person be anathema, damned. That's how serious it is. Because look, folks, only one gospel has the power to save. Only one gospel can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to light. Only one gospel has the power to set us free from sin. 
Only one gospel can see us through to the end of this life and to the next. Amen? There's only one. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that gospel. And that's laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says this, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. It's just that simple. That is good news. Do you know what is not in that list? Anything that we have to do. That is all the work of Christ Jesus in and of himself. He died for sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. Free grace for sinners on account of Jesus Christ, our great sin bearer. Our great sin bearer, Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel in its purest form. Let me tell you what the gospel is not. I'm kind of closing with this. Mike Abendroth, a pastor in New England, once said, The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. I heard that some uh, 82% of Christians in America think that's actually in the Bible. The gospel is not be good, be nice, be a better you, or be like Jesus. It's not have a relationship with Jesus or have purpose in your life. The gospel is not feed the poor. It's not get baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not let Jesus be on the throne of your heart. The gospel is not the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It's not let go and let God. The gospel is not WWJD. What would Jesus do? It's not even love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Nor is it even believe on the Lord Jesus and repent and turn from your sins. Now those last things, those last ones are wonderful and we proclaim them, but those are law. You understand? They aren't gospel. Law is not good news unless you can keep the law perfectly. Herman Bovink says this, And strictly speaking, uh, speaking, there are no demands and conditions in the gospel, but only promises and gifts. Amen. No demands in the gospel, only promises and gifts. We don't have to work for it, folks. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to deserve it. We don't pay for it. We don't add to it. We don't modify it or enhance it. We don't mingle it with things that it's not meant to be mingled with. It is what it is. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died for sinners of which we were all sinners and needed that salvation. And it is a free gift of grace given to us from the Father. And we are not to drift away from that. We just believe it. Believe it. Continue to believe it. John chapter 6, verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered, said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. We want to work for something, don't we? We want to earn it. Jesus said, You can't. You don't. This is the work of God. You believe on him whom he sent. Believe on Jesus Christ. Trust him. Rest in him. Cling to him. 
Do not drift away from him, folks. Do not give in to the flesh. Do not give in to the pull of this world. Stay right there, right at his feet, right by his side, to the truth and the hope of the gospel, for there is hope in no other. When we remember from where we have been delivered, we don't want to go back. When we recognize who we are in Christ as one reconciled and a new creation in him, we don't want to go back. And when we realize our responsibility, our responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God and to keep on in the faith and to exercise our faith, to work it out and to continue on in the gospel, we step up and we own that. Amen? Own that. There's no going back. This is the way. Continue on. I can't urge you strongly enough. I can't urge you strongly enough. Continue on. There's no other way. There's no greater way. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We thank you, God, that when there was nothing redeemable about us, still you saved us. You rescued us, Lord. You pulled us up out of that miry pit. You set our feet upon the rock. You washed us, Lord. You made us new, new creations. And God, forgive us because so often we want to go back to Egypt. So often we think, oh, it was so good back then. We deceive ourselves. We lose sight of your glory, Jesus. We lose sight of your goodness. How easily do we forget that all satisfaction, it's found in you. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it's found in you. Every heavenly blessing, it's found in you. Every, every promise, it's found in you. So Jesus, help us by your Spirit to stay the course. Keep us, Lord. Preserve us. Cause us to persevere by your grace. We don't want to go back, Lord. This world has nothing for us. We need you, Jesus. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.